Support for this podcast comes from TradePoint Atlantic, the former home of Bethlehem Steel and now one of the largest, most strategically significant intermodal global logistics hubs in the country. Learn more about TradePoint Atlantic and its commitment to preserving the story of Bethlehem Steel at Sparrows Point at TradePointAtlantic.com. Welcome back to Sparrows Point, an American Steel Story. I'm Aaron Henkin. I want to start off this episode with something I learned from labor historian Bill Berry. He told me, you can think about Sparrows Point the way an archaeologist might study the remains of a lost epic civilization. And as such, it had its rise to power, its era of dominance, and eventually its demise. And like other epic civilizations, Sparrows Point ended not so much with a bang, but a whimper. What happened was Bethlehem Steel actually went bankrupt in 2001, and when that happened, retirees' pensions and benefits evaporated. But the Sparrows Point plant didn't actually close for more than another decade after that. Instead, it went through a revolving door of sale after sale to different owners, some of them vulture capitalists, as Bill Berry puts it, who leached the enterprise of its assets and tried to flip it for a profit. The final death knell came in 2012, when Sparrows Point was sold to a firm that ceased all operations there and ultimately liquidated the plant's assets. But the writing was on the wall for Sparrows Point really for several decades before that. In a few minutes, I'm going to share with you a really in-depth analysis of the internal and external factors for the decline in an interview with a plant manager who actually helped walk Bethlehem Steel through the bankruptcy process. But first, I want you to hear about the experience from the workers who lived it firsthand. I'm going to play a collage of voices here for you of steel workers talking about the end of Sparrows Point. You could have told me in 1970 that that mill would be gone in 2020 and I'd be like you're out of your you're crazy man that's never going to happen you went from having in the 70s this secure thing that if I got a job here I'll be set for life I'll be able to work 30 years I'll have a very good pension with very good health care the proverbial gold watch and all of that and and as we navigate through these decades you start to see that slowly being chipped away the world caught up to us, and we did not change. We thought we were invincible. We thought Maryland couldn't survive without Bethlehem Steel, and that was a fantasy. Well, they clung to that fantasy to the end. Bethlehem Steel closed down because they owed the retirees $15 million. And the judge said, long as you're in existence, you're going to have to pay them. They shut the doors on a Friday and said, don't come in no more. Don't come in Monday. And as of Monday, you have no benefits. You know, we had people that committed suicide. It was gone and it was never coming back. And it creates a monumental grief. I guess we lost about 30% of our pension because it was uh, insufficiently um, uh, financed. But, you know, the thing that always makes you upset that when... Um, Dwayne Dunham was the uh, plant manager at the time, and as Betham closed down, and I guess it's what corporations do, he got a million-dollar bonus. When I think of Betham Steel, I think about the Roman Empire, and I think how industrial royalty became 
Well, right now it's dust. So how did it come to this and why? To us, it was just a big, huge steel mill, and, and we thought it would be there forever. This is Dave Conrad. He grew up outside of Philadelphia, went to college at Virginia Tech and Penn State for mechanical engineering and an MBA. After college, he went to work at Bethlehem Steel at Sparrows Point. It was 1981. It was just fascinating. You're, you're a young 25-year-old person, and I was probably the only engineer in MBA probably that wanted to work shift work. Uh, But you'd be out there working in the middle of the night, melting steel. I'm sure you've heard people say it gets in your blood, and, and that's how it was. Mr. Conrad worked at Bethlehem Steel all the way up to when Sparrows Point finally closed in the summer of 2012. He worked his way up through the managerial ranks. His career took him to top levels of management, helping to run the manufacturing and commercial operations of the business. I also spent a year or so in Washington, D.C. We had a Washington, D.C. office. And when Bethlehem Steel went bankrupt in 2001, the industry filed trade cases. Uh, So I helped represent the industry uh, in those trade cases and actually worked on the restructuring of Bethlehem Steel with our CEO at the time, a man named Steve Miller. Now, considering the fate of Sparrows Point, there's a certain irony, maybe, that Mr. Conrad's MBA thesis when he was a student was a financial analysis of the steel industry. It was too late to stop Bethlehem Steel's ship from hitting the iceberg, but now that it's sunk, Mr. Conrad is well-positioned to look back and explain exactly why. He says there are three main internal factors and three main external factors. Let's start with the external. One is, in any economy, as that economy matures the consumption of steel starts to decline. So, for example, in this country in the 1920s, the 30s, the 40s, the 50s, we were building the cities, the skyscrapers of New York City, all the bridges, the roads. Well, that is all tremendously steel-intensive. But once all those skyscrapers are built and all the bridges are built, There's still steel consumption, but it declines. So the first part was Bethlehem Steel had grown and grown and grown and grown as the country grew. But starting in the late 1970s, a lot of that infrastructure was built. So steel consumption did start to decline. And that was one factor. The second external factor? In any country, as Mr. Conrad says, when a country is growing, steel is a foundation. Every country wants a steel industry. But at the end of World War II, the steel industries in Europe and Asia were completely destroyed. All of those countries needed to rebuild. They all needed a steel industry to do that. But what happened is the private capital wasn't available. So all of those countries government nationalized the steel industries and the government 
built those mills. So after World War II in the late 1940s and 50s, throughout Europe, Asia, and all over the world, the governments owned the steel industry. By the time you get to the late 50s, early 60s, those government-owned steel companies in other countries, they were really cranking, putting out way more steel than their countries needed. So now they had this excess capacity. And where did that excess steel go? It got sold to the United States, and for cheap. So you have all these brand new post-World War II mills that were government-owned starting to ship low-cost steel to the United States, whose own private companies, frankly, were older. They had run all through the wars, and a lot of them were worn out. So you can see all of a sudden you had private companies in the United States working with older mills, competing with government-owned mills across the world, and that didn't work. External factor number three, at the end of World War II, wage and price controls get put into place across the U.S. Well, what the unions and the company did in lieu of wage increases, we, they added health benefits. And included in that was health care benefits for retirees. Well, at the time, the end of the 1940s, and I'm going to exaggerate a little, but a person worked in the mill 40 years. They retired when they were 65 years old, and they lived till they were 70. And it was a very small cost for retiree health care. As time went on, people started retiring younger. So now that person retires when he's 55 years old, but he lives till he's 80 years old. And the cost of that health care, as we all know, went up exponentially. What Mr. Conrad is saying here is that what started out as a benefit that had a small cost to the company, by the time they got to the 1990s, it's a huge cost. When Bethlehem Steel finally went bankrupt, the company had one worker for every seven retirees. And that ratio was unsustainable. So what actually probably forced the bankruptcy is Bethlehem Steel had more debts than it could pay, but the debts weren't in the form of conventional loans or bank debt. The debt was in the form of retiree benefits. We called them legacy costs. And it became unsustainable. So that's what actually, I would argue, forced the company into bankruptcy. Legacy costs. It's a pretty abstract term, but it's a term that's connected to a lot of very real people who gave 30 years or more of their lives to Sparrow's Point and expected a promise to be kept in return. Mr. Conrad says, to be blunt, these people really got hurt, and they got hurt bad. You had a lot of people that felt that Bethlehem Steel would exist forever, myself included. You just couldn't imagine Bethlehem Steel not being there. And as part of that, when you worked for Bethlehem Steel for 30, 40 years, you just fully thought 
that you would have a pension for the rest of your life and you would have your health care insurance for the rest of your life. So you never even thought about developing alternatives. <laughs> well now, relatively, although this problem had been developing over the decades, when we finally went bankrupt, it would have seemed to most individuals that it just occurred overnight. And all of a sudden, you don't have health care insurance. You know, and I'm sure there's many difficult stories of people that got hurt. I, I don't know any other way to describe it. It just it was a, kind of a tragedy. I think the most devastating thing to cover in real time was the, the retirees losing their benefits. This is J.M. Giordano. He's a professional photographer who was working for the Dundalk Eagle newspaper at the time of the Bethlehem Steel bankruptcy. Giordano grew up in Dundalk, and he's from a family of iron and steel workers. I can't imagine, and I don't think anyone my age, you know, Gen X, mid, late 40s, early 50s, whatever, can, can imagine, I mean, much less millennials and, and Gen Z, right? can imagine doing one job for half a century. Like one job for 50 years. So you, you go in, what, at 1920, and you do that till you're 70? I mean, that, it's like trying to describe infinity. I, I can't imagine that. But that's what it was. But they did it because they expected they'd be taken care of by the company. You know, you were a company person, company man, company woman. Um... And they weren't. They got out and got nothing. You know, imagine, you know, you're told by your parents, listen, we got you for college. You apply anywhere you want. Don't worry about it. Go through high school. Get 4.0. You do great. You're like, just got this acceptance letter to Harvard. And they say, well, we spent your college money. I mean, imagine the heart drop of that, right? So putting it to like a modern perspective. Um so that that was that was the, the the most heartbreaking part, and and you know every year it seemed to get worse for them. Every year the government chipped away more and more at the at the benefits of the retirees. One thing to remember here is that when a company goes into Chapter Eleven bankruptcy, that doesn't necessarily mean everything shuts down. Dave Conrad explains Sparrows Point was then bought by ISG International Steel Group, and they started the mill back up again. And this is cruel. It sounds cruel, and I don't. But those legacy costs due to the bankruptcy were done away with. So we got sold to ISG, who then took over the plants without those legacy costs. And I think within one month of being at ISG, we became profitable again. So it's once the legacy costs were done away with, plants could keep running and it was felt that for as bad as it was to do away with the legacy costs given the alternatives it was better to try to keep the plants running you know there was no sense just collapsing all the plants at the same time the continuation of Sparrows Point under ISG meant those last 3,000 or so actively employed steelworkers still had jobs, even though the retirees had been stripped of their pensions. The mill became quite profitable again, 
And perhaps in an alternate universe, some of that profit could have gone to those retirees left out in the cold. But ISG was headed by a man named Wilbur Ross. You might recognize his name because he was later nominated to become the U.S. Secretary of Commerce by President Donald Trump. Well, Mr. Ross had different plans for the new profitability of Sparrow's Point. Here's Mark Reuter, author of Sparrow's Point, Making Steel. When Wilbur Ross sold the plant to Lakshmir Mattel, he made, by my estimates and other reports agree, around $300 million personally in profit. Okay, let's rewind again and get back to the financial autopsy of Bethlehem Steel. We've heard Dave Conrad explain the external factors for the company's decline, less overall demand for steel in the U.S., newer state-run steel plants in other countries selling excess steel to America for cheap, and the advent of U.S. wage and price controls on the industry. Mr. Conrad says in addition to these external pressures, there were internal problems at Bethlehem Steel that compounded the damage. First off, he says, it had a management culture that was a victim of its own success. The company had been so successful. I I don't think it's an understatement to say Bethlehem Steel was a significant part of the country winning World War I. It was a significant part of the country winning, the Allies winning World War II. It was a significant part of the growth of the late 1940s, the 50s, and the 60s. It was just an incredibly successful company. And I think sometimes when either an individual or an organization gets so successful, you start to just look inward, you start becoming very bureaucratic, and ultimately you become less efficient. Labor historian Bill Barry has a decidedly less diplomatic take on this. He says the management at Bethlehem Steel was nepotistic, insular, and focused on lining its own pockets. They were the highest paid executives of any company in the country. And so instead of investing in new technology or new skills, the company paid out high executive salaries. I had an experience of a guy who later worked uh, at Dundalk as a personnel director and had our battles, but he worked for Bethlehem Steel. And he was up in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania, and they were going to have some sort of an executive banquet. And somebody decided that they needed centerpieces of orchids. And the only place they could get the orchids was in Hawaii. And so they took a private jet, empty, flew it to Hawaii, picked up the orchids, and brought them back to Bethlehem. And they consider that just to be normal business expense. I think also a similar thing happened on the union side. This is Dave Conrad again. He says, if you're going to level the victim of your own success accusation at the management, you also need to put that same criticism on the unions at the mill. The unions were very critical in the 1940s and 50s, I would argue, to making Bethlehem Steel a better company. Uh, They significantly helped force improvements in safety, wages, benefits, and I would argue was a significant factor in the growth of the middle class 
in this country. But I would also argue somewhere along the road, and I would say it was probably in the late 80s, 90s, I think the union went too far. I'm going to say, especially on the work rules, we, we started getting work rules that frankly were just inefficient. A, a given task might take 10 people to do, but if we had had different work rules, we could have done the same task safely with six people. So if you've got inefficient work rules on one side and a complacent management on the other side, this is not a recipe for innovation. And Bethlehem Steel, in the first half of the 20th century, that's what it was known for, being on the cutting edge of innovation. But starting in about the late 1970s, early 80s, another technology was developed and people in the industry called it the mini-mill technology. And in a sense, what that technology was is the steel mills, the steel industry had historically been very, very large, capital-intensive, massive steel mills. And that's where the products were made. What the mini-mill technology did, though, is rather than producing steel with these massive steel mills that could make several million tons per year of steel, They would start up a little steel mill that could maybe make a couple hundred thousand tons a year. These mini-mills were a lot less capital-intensive, they had lower operating costs, and Mr. Conrad says they just became more nimble. For reasons I've never quite understood, because in certain ways Bethlehem invented some of the technology, knew the technology, there was no secret about it, but we never went to that technology. So you had a company that for decade after decade was innovating, but then this last innovation that occurred, we did not go to it. And in hindsight, I believe that was just a huge mistake. It's important to learn from mistakes, but you've got to learn the right thing. Bethlehem Steel did try to react to the advancement of its competitors, but Mr. Conrad says its reaction was an inherently flawed strategy. The strategy became we tried to shrink our way to prosperity rather than grow our way to prosperity. So you had a given product line. It was losing money. We'd shut it down. As opposed to trying to fix that product line in a way to make it profitable. Well, let's say you shut down that product line and that was a thousand workers. Well, you might think that cost goes away, but because of the legacy costs, the the retiree health care, the pensions, those costs for the most part did not go away. And that strategy over several decades just didn't work. Bethlehem Steel filed for bankruptcy in October of 2001. After that, Sparrows Point was bought, sold, and bought again by a laundry list of short-term owners. International Steel Group flipped it to the Indian-owned multinational corporation ArcelorMittal. ArcelorMittal sold it to Russia's largest steel company, Severstall. 
Severstall sold it to R.G. Steele, owned by New York billionaire Ira Rennert. And that brings us up to around 2015, when R.G. Steele decided it wanted to sell the plant. They couldn't find anyone who wanted to buy it. So at that time, R.G. Steele decided to cut their losses. And at this time, there was no buyer for the plant. Uh, So we went into a liquidation. So it got sold to a liquidator. Within a couple months, they started tearing the plant down. And if you drive by there today, you'd never even know a steel mill ever existed. At the time that the plant shut down, I was uh, the duly elected financial secretary of, of the local. This is steelworker Mike Lewis. We met him a few episodes ago. When the plant shut down, Mr. Lewis was the guy answering the frantic phone calls that were pouring into the union hall. People are then really, really concerned. And you have to, on top of your, your local union officer duties, you also, you know, you serve as a rep, too. So you have to become counselor. You have to be a, an, a person that can give people answers because people want to know. And due to the fact that the plant was in bankruptcy, one of the things that I had to deal with as a as an elected union officer was the bankruptcy court voided out the labor contract, and people lost their health insurance because it, you know the company was a self-insured company, and a lot of people didn't really know what that meant. They think because I have a Blue Cross and Blue Shield card that I'm covered, but they don't know that the The Blue Cross and Blue Shield only managed it for the company who paid the bills. And the company was in bankruptcy. So people ended up getting stuck with medical bills because all of us signed a little document when we go to the doctor's office. I think you know what I'm talking about on the back. And it says, in the event there's an issue, you're responsible for the bill. And we just sign it every time because we're going to see the doctor and his, his business as usual, and we never get stuck with the bill because we have insurance. So one of the big issues that I had to deal with was the reality that the people was, were not only lost their jobs, the plant was in bankruptcy, there was no subpay because of the bankruptcy, the labor contract is voided out by the bankruptcy court, and people are now just living off unemployment and the health care they thought they had was gone. And in fact, they owe some money to medical organizations for treatments they may have had in the last 30 to 60 days. And your job was to field those calls and help those people figure out what to do with their lives. Yes. Yes. And you have to help comfort people and help them navigate through that and almost almost played a role of uh, a, a, a psychologist, you know, and and just try to keep people sane as they're going through a trying time. And you're going through the same trying time yourself, you know, and it's a hell of a work-life balance. To the company's credit, they did offer unemployment counseling for the steelworkers when Sparrows Point shut down. They gave them opportunities to retrain for other jobs. Kathy Garrison remembers her appointment with the job counselor. She was 55 years old. At that point, she'd been working at Sparrows Point for 37 years. And I went up there, and and he says, okay, what do you think that you might want to (laughs) do? And I looked at him, and I said, 
55 years old. I've got 37 years in the same place. I want to retire. That's what I want to do. What do you mean what I want to do? Just like, no, what do you think that you might want to do? And, I mean, you, the sad thing about it is, like, a lot of those people, a lot of the people, and myself, semi-included, um, they don't, it was a whole different world than it was when I started there. I mean, you come out and then all of a sudden, even anything that you, any jobs that you apply for, you have to apply for electronically. And a lot of these people that I worked with, brilliant people, you know, they just don't, they never had the need to know too much about computers or how to, um, how to fill out a resume or how to, you know, I had to actually get my, um, my granddaughter to sit down and explain to me how you do certain things. How do you split the screen? I don't know how to do this, you know. And she's like, Grandma, you should have learned this in school. Like, they didn't have computers when I was in school. So after 126 years of steelmaking on Sparrow's Point, this is really how the story ends, with the atomization of the workforce and ultimately the demolition of the mill. And now if you drive down there, it's almost impossible to believe that this vibrant community, this incredibly rich and vibrant workplace was ever there. This is Deborah Rudisill, author of Roots of Steel, Boom and Bust in an American Steel Town. Now it's a bunch of warehouses. <laughs> so uh, the land is being used, and there are jobs there. FedEx, Amazon, other companies are, are, have um, distribution operations there. But as it was throughout its long history, Sparrows Point is kind of a reflection of larger trends in, you know, international, global business. And um, it, it, it kind of reflects where we are as a country. You can get a job down there, but it's going to be an Amazon job making what the Amazon workers make, you know, $15 an hour, rather than a manufacturing job, a union manufacturing job where... Toward the end, people were making over $100,000 a year down there. Um, so that's where we are now. And the question of where we are now is exactly where we're going to pick up on the next and final episode in this series. We're going to get ready to wrap up here. And as we do, let's turn for a minute to Anita Kassoff, Executive Director of the Baltimore Museum of Industry. Anita is spearheading the museum's Bethlehem Steel Legacy Project, which aims to document the history of Sparrows Point. And Anita, this particular chapter of that history, the fall of Sparrows Point, is a dark one, a tragic one, maybe an inevitable one, maybe not. You've listened along with us this episode. What's on your mind at the end of this chapter? I would say that one of the things that really struck me about this episode was just how monumental the loss is. The scale of the grief really came across in this what was lost when the mill closed. And for me, it helped lend some nuance and helped me to understand um, the roots of some of the anger that so many people are feeling in this country about, um, I guess what you could say is the, the disappearance or the diminishment of the American dream and people's ability to achieve it. It was a real eye-opener for me as I interviewed people this episode to begin to understand the pluses and minuses of having kind of a all-encompassing industrial system that 
is so much a part of the fabric of your life and that you can give your work hours to for so many decades that you're left in a way somewhat helpless to deal with the outside world when it's all said and done. Yes, I think that came across really clearly, too. Um, the idea that people literally could not envision or believe that the mill might one day not exist. And, you know, the tragedy there is that the people who were least able to bear it bore the brunt of the loss. Joe Giordano, who, you know, speaks really eloquently about this, he's a photographer, and his photographers are part of an exhibition that's at the museum now called Shuttered. And the most powerful photograph in that exhibition, I think, is one in which he captures the looks on the faces of a couple of women at the moment that they learned that their pensions would be cut. It's this just horrifying um, combination of disbelief and resignation on their faces. Um, and I think that really powerfully captures what this loss meant to people and the burdens they'd have to bear. Anita Kassoff is the executive director of the Baltimore Museum of Industry. Always happy to hear your insights, Anita, and we'll talk again next episode. Thank you. Coming up next time on the podcast, what does the story of Sparrows Point have to teach us today? What can the ghost of a now-gone steel mill show us about an uncertain economic future? When you're successful, you can't get complacent. You have to keep evolving. And if you don't, our free market system says you won't survive. Next episode, we look at the shift at Sparrows Point from manufacturing to distribution jobs, the overall decline of union power, and the pitfalls of nostalgia. Sparrows Point, an American Steel Story, is a co-production of WYPR and the Baltimore Museum of Industry as part of the BMI's Bethlehem Steel Legacy Project. You can learn more about the museum and the Bethlehem Steel Legacy Project at thebmi.org. Special thanks to BMI staff members Ani Gellis, Beth Maloney, Anita Kassoff, and Joseph Abel. Thanks also to Blue Dot Sessions for providing music for the series. This podcast is made possible with generous support from TradePoint Atlantic and Maryland Humanities. For Sparrows Point, an American Steel story, I'm Aaron Hinkin. Thanks for listening.